Welcome to Nostalgia, your favorite pop culture podcast where we have deep conversations about superficial things. I'm Nicole, your host, and each week we unlock core memories from the 90s, 2000s, and beyond while examining the past through a contemporary lens. Our guests are pop culture tastemakers who explore how our formative experiences shape how we see the world. We talk about trends, fashion, music, identity, consumer behavior, societal attitudes, and more. Nostalgia is a reminder of how our individual and collective memories make us feel like we belong. And if you like Nostalgia, be sure to follow, subscribe, rate, review, and share with a friend who loves pop culture as much as we do. Plus, we have a lot of fun. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Nostalgia. Today, Jessica is here with me and I'm so excited to have her because she has just some of the funniest videos that I have ever seen in the Nostalgia niche where she really brings together her love for 2000s emo and scene culture, which you already know I'm a big fan of, and her passion for theater as well. So we're going to talk about how she really taps into that creativity and expression and some of her other favorite moments from the 2000s and beyond. So welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I love your Josie and the Pussycats shirt. Thank you. I actually just got this and I'm so excited because I we used to be obsessed. I made a video about it recently too, but I that was like one of my obsessions and I found this and I'm like, I have to have it. So I am wearing it with every opportunity I can. So <laughs> Yeah, I, I recently saw a video where someone actually had a vinyl of the Josie and the Pussycats soundtrack. I'm like, that's incredible and amazing. Something that definitely didn't exist when the movie came out. Right. And I'm like, that's so cool. And I'm slowly replacing all of my regular clothes with nostalgia inspired merch. I'm like, I, I, is it a Paul Frank shirt you have on right now too? Yes, it is. It is. I got yes. it at Target. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, I love Paul Frank so much. Me too. I always love Adelia's moment. And so when I saw this, I'm like, I have to have it. And then they also had a tiered denim skirt. And I'm like, I'm making this outfit my personality until further notice. Yeah, I don't blame you. Yeah, actually, the lead singer of Letters to Cleo, who is that band that has been in so many different 90s teen movies, the lead singer was the singing voice of Rachel Lee yes. Cook. Yes, I didn't realize that either because I was really young when that movie came out. And I was just, I like I said, I, I made that video. I'm like, that is my entire personality until further notice. And I watched it again. And then I was, you know, as I start putting stuff out too, I learned so much as well. But yeah, that's what everyone was telling me. They're like, this is, and then I started listening to like the music and I'm like oh this makes so much more sense now so oh my gosh yeah no that soundtrack is fantastic I actually was bumping uh that whole soundtrack in my car I went I drove like a you know 45 minute distance and I was like okay I'm gonna I'm gonna listen to this whole soundtrack and I'm just like bumping like du jour and everyone's looking at me like what is going on but I'm like you don't understand this it honestly that's probably one of my favorite like 2000s movies that just had like the best soundtrack hands down yes two 
2000s movie soundtracks that I was fully obsessed with. One was the Charlie's Angels soundtrack. And the other was A Walk to Remember, which okay. I don't I don't even think this is terrible, but I don't even think I've seen A Walk to Remember the movie, but I know every single, it's all Mandy Moore, but I know every single song from it because those songs were beautiful. They were so good. And Mandy Moore is just, and she still is, I'm, I'm glad that she's still out acting and singing, but she had some of the most iconic music from the 2000s and she was like everywhere and in like princess diaries and just yeah she's got a beautiful voice were there any other soundtracks from 2000s movies that you're like this is my life story from now on um i would definitely say i know the uh, the freaky friday soundtrack too with like the hypothetical band um that one went way too hard too. It was just so good. There's another one I was trying to remember and I can't think of it. It'll come back to me at the most random moment at like when I'm falling asleep this evening. But Yeah, no, I can't. I will say the Lizzie McGuire movie had a really good soundtrack as well. I really liked that one, but I was just, I would like, my mom owned a dance studio growing up, so she was always buying CDs. She'd go to Target every Tuesday. She called it Target Tuesday because that's when all the new music would come out. And she would go buy CDs of these either movies or, you know, just like the nows. And so I would just listen to that. And that's kind of like how I got into the music that I was into or the bands. And I would kind of, it would spark that interest. But I just, yeah, there's so many good ones that I, I just can't think of them, of course, right this second. So... That's actually something amazing that you bring up that I want to talk to you about the fact that your mom owned a dance studio because I was in the dance studio full time when I was growing up and yeah, the period between, okay, up until I was about seven or so, I only listened to my parents' music for the most part. I really didn't listen to the current radio stations. I grew up on Queen and Led Zeppelin and the Beatles and it wasn't until Spice Girls came out when I was like, okay, now this this is my thing. This is my music. And I got oh, really absolutely. into, yeah, I got really into Spice Girls, Celine Dion, Britney Spears, Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, and, oh, and Mariah Carey. Oh, and, yes. you know, that was my music. And so I think that belonging to a dance studio, that was a major way to discover music and it was that time in between okay i'm no longer just listening to the music of my parents generation but before the digital age of oh well now i can go on a random myspace page and download songs off the internet you know like you would listen to songs from a cd without necessarily even knowing who was the singer and there was i remember one enya song that we warmed up to in ballet (laughs) it's like you're like what are you supposed to do you would have to ask your teacher what the name of the song was or something plus enya's songs a lot of them are melodic and don't necessarily have decipherable lyrics right you're like what is it you try to hum it you're like what was this one song and then you had to hum it out you're like "Ah." like no i completely agree with that Enya had some of the best music for like ballet and warm-ups but no i that's that's a great point though too because yeah because if you think about it too and now that i think about it is there really wasn't a way to like i guess discover new music unless you were actively going to 
like CD stores or that, that would even record stores, um, you know, or searching through that or going to shows like that was kind of the only way or, you know, music videos as well. That was a great way to discover new music, too. But it's just crazy to think like how much we have changed and not even a very long time with how we discover new music. But like you said, too, the MySpace era really, really changed our way of finding new music. But yeah, you had to listen to it in class. And that's and that was what was interesting for me, too, is that I was, you know, a kid growing up. But, you know, especially when you have a dance studio, you, you want to cater the music to what the kids are listening to because you want it to be exciting and you want it. You know, they want them to connect with it. But then it's funny because I had a very similar experience. But, yeah, just hearing stuff through class or, you know, that was how you discovered new music, too. Yes. I remember whatever my dance teachers listened to, they would read Cosmopolitan magazine. They would listen to, I remember... One, I remember two of my dance teachers specifically, one when I was about, I don't know, 10 years old maybe, and this was, it was mostly elder millennials and young Gen Xers who were the dance teachers at the time, and one of my dance teachers loved Janet Jackson, so we did a Janet Jackson compilation, and so if someone's listening who has never belonged to a dance studio, when you have a dance to a specific song. You listen to that song approximately 500 million times in your life. It's absolutely obscene how many times you listen to the same songs. And so you're like, wow, Janet Jackson. Like, I, I was born in the 90s. I didn't, I didn't grow up with her during the peak of her popularity. And so to discover something new for the first time and having that nostalgic glimpse at it is super super exciting it was well and janet jackson both janet and michael jackson were huge in the dance world especially in the 90s it was you know they were they were doing it all they were singing dancing and and then especially michael jackson would have these really like cinematic like mini movie music videos and that was huge and that influenced the dance culture as well that's when we started to see you know, and like I, I always call it the cheese grater video, um, the one that Janet and Michael Jackson did where it's all like yeah. silver on the inside and it looks like you're licking on the inside of like a cheese grater. I can't think of that song right off. Um, Scream? Scream, yes, that's exactly it. Um, but that was really cool because you saw siblings just dancing and it was so, it's so cool to see that. And then that, I feel like that kind of influenced, you know, the more modernized, the pop star, like where we would see, you know, the dancing and the whole performance element to it, like where, you know, Britney was this incredible dancer and then you saw Christina and then it became more of like a full circle act. Yeah, I was in the convention circuit too when I, starting when I was like 13 or so and the choreographers who you would go to a ballroom and all day for an entire weekend, you would get to train with these people who were dancing back up for Britney. They were choreographing for Michael Jackson. They were like, they were a part of this culture and this history. And you're the kid and you're the student and you're learning about the history of the music. You're learning about the history of the movement. But you're also there with people who are defining the current zeitgeist of music and movement. And I find that really interesting. And, and even that impact on pop culture, 
This is hilarious. I saw on Instagram recently someone had posted about Jennifer Lopez in her I'm Real era and showed a picture of a backup dancer and was like, oh, this is, you know, remember Chris Judd? And I was like, I didn't mean to be rude, but I was like, that's not Chris Judd. But I get how, you you know, he flew under the radar. But it's like I used to take class from Chris Judd and someone Same. else had post. Yeah, someone else had posted something about um, this was funny. This girl did uh, her rendition of the combination from the Lady Gaga's Bad Romance music video. Yes. And oh, yes. she was so funny because she was like doing sound effects throughout the whole thing. And I was like, somebody call back up Lorianne Gibson and get this girl hired. And it's just right. so funny seeing how people who are not in the dance world um, perceive these people who have been woven into like the, the fabric of the culture. Oh, absolutely. And kind of to piggyback on what you were saying, too, in those conventions. But I, you probably can attest to that. Like, it's so like as a kid, when you're hearing, oh, this person, you know, dance for J-Lo or Britney, you're just like awestruck. You're like, these people have made it. And it's just so it's intimidating, but it's exciting because, like you said, you're getting that that, you know, firsthand experience with those people that are really defining the culture. And I, I remember when I was eight, I'd be probably done the same dance conventions, which is funny to think about. Yeah. Uh, but I remember when I was eight, I took an, a dance convention that toured um, all over the U.S. And I remember the one of the guys that was teaching, he was the choreographer for Britney Spears' music video for Oops, I Did It Again. And he taught us the choreography in eight, like seven, I think it was seven or eight at the time, I about, I was, like, I looked at my mom, because my mom was, like, you know, sitting in on the classes and kind of observing, I just remember looking over, like, <gasps> like, just that wide eye, like, I've made it, like, this is, like, my dream right here, and I remember going to school as soon as, like, that convention was over, and I was like, you guys, look, I know this choreography, I learned it, and they're like, okay, like, you're weird, but it was so, like, it was so exciting and it's you don't get that experience unless you go to those conventions and it's one of the most cool fun experiences I think I've had in my youth is getting that firsthand you'd mentioned how when you go to these conventions you're just you're starstruck you're awestruck because when you're a kid you think that being a backup dancer is like the way to make it in life you think that the only career path or choices lead to dance you're either a dancer you're a dance teacher or you're a dance studio owner and truly until you know you turn 17 you have to decide what you want to do for the entire rest of your life that was it for me up until that point and I think that the difficulties in pursuing that avenue professionally it was something really, really hard to grapple with the kind of reality that you have to face. Um, but, but also with that fantasy of like getting to be so close to people and an experience that shapes you and that shapes culture. And I think that's, we're the kind of people who are so engaged in culture, in music, in dance, and ultimately and I say, this is why I do everything, the podcast, everything to bring people together and help people feel like a part of something. Oh, absolutely. Well, and it's hard too, because like you said too, like when you turn 17, you're faced with that ultimate decision of, 
you know, do I do this? But it's really hard to, and especially for people who aren't in the dance world to understand is there's definitely an expiration date for having a dance career. And it sucks to say, and, but it's definitely like once you hit, you know, 25, it's like, that's kind of the end and it's unfortunate. And I have so much respect and applaud so many dancers that just keep pushing through that, you know, their forties. And I'm just like, you guys are so like, it's so cool to see that, but it's really hard because everybody wants, you know, young teenagers. And it's one of the most overworked underpaid industries. You're going to classes, you're going to auditions and very seldomly do you ever land you know, gigs out of that. Or, you know, if you do, they're so poorly paid, you know, it covers your gas for maybe what, two weeks, if that, two days. I mean, depending upon how, you know, large the, you know, the gig is, it's just one of those industries that's so competitive. And it's like, you have to, it's not even, you have to compete with yourself. Like it's, you just got to bust your butt like nonstop. Mentally, it's really hard being a dancer and having to deal with pressures ever since you were a child. And, and it's very easy when you're used to it and that's your norm. But then when you zoom out and you've had life experience and you're like, wait a second, maybe that constant pressure I was putting on myself isn't I, normal. I mean, what does normal mean anyway? But it's not normal to put that much pressure on yourself and to realize, you know what? If I want to be creative, if I want to be expressive, whatever those values who make me that make me who I am that come out when I'm dancing, there are other ways that I can channel that too. And that if I do want to dance going forward for my enjoyment, for my expression, to have fun, then I can do that without tying this pressure to it. Because when I would go to classes, yeah, in early 2020, I would put so much pressure on myself and be like, well, this is it. Or like, well, I had a full-time fashion job, but everyone else in the room is a professional dancer trying to be noticed, trying to be seen. Right. And you get so caught up in the comparison game. And that's, that's one of the hardest things too, is to like, just focus on yourself and like your abilities and just not look at everybody else in the room. And like you said, they might be doing this professionally full-time and you're like, oh my gosh, but it's... It, yeah. And I think that's one of the nice takeaways too, is, is I think now if you, you know, do pursue something like that as an adult, there's so many good, um, at least where I live, I know there's so many good programs and there's, you know, there's drop-in classes you can do that have kind of a, you know, competitive feel, but it's also like, Hey, like we're, you know, we're a little rusty. It's just, we're here to have fun, but it's still kind of that same element, but without those high stakes still, but it's, I, I've, I've actually danced most of my twenties, um, continued that I danced pro for a couple teams. Um, and I've danced on some like hip hop teams and such like that, but it, yeah, it, it's hard. And it's one of those like things that kind of smack you in the face too, you know, like for example, I was teaching, um, last year and I was, I was helping assist like a cheer, um, tumbling, you know, class. And they were like, can you still do an aerial? And I was like, yeah, I can. I should not have attempted that. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I can. But then like, it's like one of those harsh reminders where like your body's like, nope, you haven't done that in years. You can't just go out there and throw that just out of the blue. Like you kind of, it's one of those things where you realize like how much progress like you lose if you don't stay up on it. But it's like, I, how often do I really need to be tumbling as in somebody in my thirties? But you know, <laughs> yes, I totally understand that. But I think that 
being this age and kind of seeing how how things turned out and being able to be proud of this version of yourself and be like, you know what, this is somebody that my teenage self would want to be. This is some like, I think that I am cool and I can tell my 13 year old self that because I am me. Like I still am me. I am yeah. a composite of every version of me. And that reminds me of kind of a theme of, which I know is one of your favorite 2000s movies, 13 going on 30. Yes. I, o I always joke that I'm 30 going on 13 because I'm just obsessed with, you know, the 2000s. But that idea of 30, flirty and thriving, it's so cool to because of course you know the context of the movie where you know a child dreams about how glamorous and cool they're going to be when they grow up but now that I am that grown-up I'm like wait yes glamour and yes coolness yes absolutely and it's really funny because I actually saw that movie in theaters with my mom when I was 13 and I remember and it's one of those movies like it, I don't know if you ever have this experience, but like when you watch a movie when you're a kid and then you start to like watch it gradually at different stages in your life and you're like, oh, I, like for me, like I watch movies where I related to more of the kids. And then now that I'm, you know, my age now, I go, oh, I kind of get like I start to empathize with the parents or the adults a little bit more that are often like villainized in kids movies and so forth. And I'm it's just interesting because I saw that movie when I was 13 and I just kept thinking of like, oh, it'd be so cool to be 30. And like near now here I am. And yeah, it's weird. And that's honestly one of my favorite movies. And that was one of the, the first movies that really like introduced me to like the idea of designer and like glam. And because the, the wardrobe and the accessories in that movie are just top tier there. I still that is one of my all time favorite movies with like fashion for like the Y2K era because it was just so, it was so colorful. And I loved how they incorporated that fun style to make like Jennifer Garner stand out because, you know, mentally she's still thir 13, but she still has that fun, colorful personality. And I love how they show that. But it's funny because like now here we are in 2022 and all of those styles are like back in style. And it's weird to see that come back to fruition. I'm definitely not mad about it because I'm like, now I, it was popular when I was 13 and now I'm 30 and I can still rock the same thing. It's kind of, it's, it's kind of cool actually. <laughs> I love that. I saw a tweet recently that I actually laughed out loud at. It said, okay, now Bennifer is married. So we need Jennifer Garner to the, to do the right thing and marry Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> Like, I love yeah. that. Oh my <laughs> That's gosh. our dream 13 going on 30 couple. Oh my gosh. I, I said, it's funny is whoever casted that movie and I see like, I remember seeing like a bunch of memes and I think I've been seeing them like recently, but like whoever did the casting for that movie deserves like recognition on the highest level because they did not skip a beat for casting people who literally looked identical and it's weird now because um the girl who played young jenna she's in her 30s now and she's on tiktok and i cannot believe how much she resembles 30 year old jennifer garner now and i'm just like shocked i'm like this played out so well yeah i think it has been really funny when i first got on tiktok she was someone that i saw a lot and it was 
yeah, it was when she was 29. And so she was leading up to, you know, the big reveal at age 30. And I think that's what's so cool is seeing an entire generation now grow up. And even like when, you know, when Jenna got older and went and did the thriller dance, it's like that's the same as us doing a dance to, you know, Khaleesi's milkshake or something. (laughs) All those like weird DJ pop-ups they used to have at like middle school lunches and where we would do all these like choreographed dances. I mean, I would still do Thriller if, you know, given the chance if I'm at a party. I'm like, I would be out there on the floor now. I'm like, I don't care how old I am. We're, we're always doing the Thriller if it comes on. <laughs> I know. I saw another post that was like, I hate when people say that, you know, breaking out into song and dance in real life is unrealistic because if it is, you have the wrong friends. <laughs> it, like, oh, my gosh. I feel like it's so realistic. I mean, especially for, like, theater kids. That is just another Tuesday, I feel like. And you love theater, too. I, I was so consumed with dance. I did cheerleading for a little bit, but I was like, you have to work with my schedule. <laughs> I was like a, you know, super into my one activity. Did you do dance and did you do theater also I did I had a crazy schedule as a teenager and I honestly don't know how I had time to eat like eat and breathe um because I so I did theater in high school I never did any like community theater anything like that um also because my mom was choreographer of my high school and so I started going to the school my mom started working there when I was in middle school and so my mom would take me like on a Saturday where they were doing like they would block out, you know, a six hour day to choreograph three numbers. And I just remember like being 11 and 12 and I was like, I want to do this. I want to do this because it was perfect because you're integrating, you know, acting, singing and dancing all at the same time. And so my uh, I started teaching at the studio when I was like middle school, high school. Um, so I would teach a couple of classes a week, but then I would go to school I have like a, you know, a zero period. I was taking like extra classes. So I'd be at school from like 6.15 in the morning to like 6.15 at night. And then I would go after I was done with school and I would teach for a couple hours or take classes and I wouldn't even get home till like nine or 10. So like I, I look back now and I just go, how on earth did I have a social life? Which it was very minimal other than theater, but I don't know. I just, I really love like the theater aspect because, you know, growing up in dance, you're using those same songs to perform to. Cause oftentimes, you know, if you're doing a Broadway or show number, it's those same things, but it's like, why not just do it in person and do it all at once. So, but yeah, I, I love theater so much. I spent um, four years doing the musical theater. I did a little bit of like, um, like the comedy theater. I think I did a total of, eight or nine stage shows in my high school career. So it, it's, it was one of my favorite experiences of high school. I love that. What are your favorite Broadway shows of all time? Oh man. So I only seen a couple like Broadway shows in person. Um, one of my all time favorites, well, two of my all time favorites, I love into the woods and I love Sweeney Todd, but they're also written by the same, um, composer, Stephen Sondheim. Um, which I know he just passed away recently, which kind of broke my heart. But I really love, I'm always drawn to composer styles where it's, I feel like those, the music is all very different from one another. And I feel like it tells a story 
really well. But I love that there's so many, especially Into the Woods, there's a lot of good integration between characters and they overlap and it all kind of creates a story enmeshed with one another. Um, and Sweeney Todd, I think I, I, I liked Sweeney Todd a lot more after I saw the Tim Burton version because I, I don't know if you're familiar with the stage show, but the stage show is so different than how the Tim Burton movie was portrayed. Because in the stage show, it, Johnny Depp, like how he played, you know, he played um, Sweeney Todd. Sweeney Todd. Yeah, that's how he was designed in the stage show. But in the stage show, everybody else looks normal. It's just him. So it's like they kind of isolate him to be this weird outcast guy, which I love how they kind of made, they kind of ran with the whole dark element because that's typical Tim, Tim Burton. Um, but I think it, it made it overall just a lot more interesting and appealing to me. But then I, I kind of revisited the soundtrack and, like, the show, and I'm just like, this is actually written really well. <laughs> so, Yeah, it's interesting how we were talking about music discovery earlier, too, because I remember I used to listen to Broadway musical soundtracks, and especially when, uh, when like, iTunes came into play, because okay. you would get to discover more Broadway musical soundtracks. And right. I couldn't just afford to go to a bunch of Broadway shows. Right. But, um, but yeah, I remember the hairspray soundtrack. I <laughs> played over and over and over again. I yes. saw wicked on a school field trip soon after it came out. And I like oh. died. I was literally bawling my eyes out. Every I've seen it a few times over the years and I just bawl my eyes out every single time. Um, it's such a good yeah. show too, and I I loved it when they had Idina Menzel and Kristen Chenoweth. Just the two of them are just powerhouses mm -hmm. on their own. Ugh. Yes, and right, I had seen it with the original cast, and oh, I'm so at jealous. the time at the time, it's like you don't know. Like I I hadn't seen. I hadn't seen Rent the Broadway play. And again, I was in middle school, so I, I was really not the target audience for having seen Rent years earlier on Broadway. And this yeah. was before Rent the movie. And so I didn't know who Aida Menzel was. I didn't know who Kristen Chenoweth was. It wasn't until after the show became this phenomenon that you were like, oh, wow. I yeah. got to see something like super, super special that's not going to be around forever. Right. Well, and especially like when those shows first come out, those original cast members are so they set the tone for the duration of however long that stage show runs. And that mm -hmm. like that is like the goal. It's the same thing, you know, like with Hamilton like that. I mean, it's huge now. And I actually didn't watch that one till 2020 because I just, you know, being an adult and stuff like that. <laughs> You just don't always have the time, but I remember sitting down and I was like, holy cow, this is so good. If you were to make, so crossing over your love for theater and emo things, if you were to make a Broadway musical and feature emo songs in it, what, what would it kind of be about? Oh man, I feel like, and I feel like so much of like the videos that I make on social media kind of like set the stage. I'm a huge my Chemical Romance fan. And I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> they, they were my first introduction into that genre. Cause again, like, like you said too, like, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of ways to discover music. And I remember I, so every morning before school I would wake up and I'd get up early 
just so I could watch music videos before school. And I'd get them to watch on VH1, I'd watch MTV. I didn't have Fuse. Um, I wasn't one of those cool kids. Um, but that was like when they were first like coming out. And I remember just being like 12 and I was like, what? Like it just turned my world upside down. And I was like, cause again, like Helena has a ballerina and it has somebody dancing in the video. And I was like, I want to run with that. So I love, and that's one of the things that I really love about my chemical romance is like from their albums from start to finish, they have a story. There's a story of characters and you follow and every song tells a story about the characters from start to finish. And I love that it would, I almost want to do like, if I was to create something, it would be something along the lines of like Helena, where it's like that dark sort of like ballerina feel um, which funny story, I posted a couple videos on TikTok, but I did a dance for my eighth grade talent show to Helena. And, <laughs> That's amazing. And I handmade my costume and I basically recreated the whole Helena look. And I remember dancing for like my, it was like the last day of school. It was a huge, huge ordeal. And I remember that's the first time I've ever gotten a standing ovation because I was not super social. I was not a popular kid. I didn't have a lot of friends. I kind of just kept to myself and I kind of isolated myself from people just because I was into like some weird stuff. And I remember that was the first time where people were like, this is so cool. And I was like, what? What? Like, you consider me cool? What? Like, I was shocked. But I feel like it would be something kind of like dark, like Black Parade-esque. Um, I wouldn't want to keep it like the exact same, but honestly, if My Chemical Romance came out with a musical, I would not be mad. So I feel like anything that they take and create out of it, it would probably mirror something similar to that. <laughs> My Chemical Romance, the musical. I'm really here for it. This is basically like our brainstorming session for which emo band is going to somehow come across this, listen and be inspired to start writing that musical. They already have some source material. And then I'm like Green Day figured it out. They have a show. So <laughs> right. Right. Clearly, if they could do it, someone needs to follow in their footsteps. I am ready. There are so many movies that become Broadway shows that just don't resonate with people. But I think mm -hmm. that when music is already at the core of the product. You know, if you take a movie that's not a musical and try to make it into a Broadway play, it may or may not translate. Whereas if you're taking something that's already inherently musical, I think that's such an easier adaptation. Yeah. And even like a rock opera style too, you could just create it something along the storylines and use the dialect and something like that. I have not personally seen American Idiot, the Green Day show, but I know it exists and it's been really successful. Um, but yeah, I just think it's really cool that people, and like you said too, not every movie or every musical lands or resonates. I will say I actually just saw the Heathers, the musical. That was my first time seeing it. Um, I saw it at a community theater with one of my friends a couple months ago, and that was one of the ones where I was surprised that it translated so well that I almost liked the musical more than I liked the movie. And that doesn't happen for me very often. So wow. I don't know if you've seen that that uh, stage show or listen to the soundtrack. I just, it's gorgeous, and they do such a good job with it. I should listen to the soundtrack. I've seen the movie and I love the movie. So I'm definitely going to listen to the soundtrack. And I went to see Mean Girls on Broadway very soon after it came out. I found out it was coming out. And then I'm like, okay, I'm getting tickets for 
the week it opens or whatever. Yeah. So I was so excited. And I went with my group of best friends and it was good because it was different enough from the movie because of course I'm fall into that category of people who could probably give a one person <laughs> show reciting right. the, the script of Mean Girls. Same. But I think, yeah, I think it was different enough where you're not constantly comparing it to the movie. It's something that can stand out on its own. And I think they're actually making a movie of the musical, which is funny because they made a movie, made it into a musical, and then they're making that into a movie. It's, it's, Love that. I guess just, a, <laughs> it's very cyclical. I don't know. Well, that's one of the movies I feel like that's just inherently stood the test of time in a very realistic way because even like the styles have now come back, but even like you don't meet somebody very often that hasn't seen Mean Girls or they're like, oh, that movie that wasn't good. Like everybody agrees. Like that's one of the things that we can all like mutually agree on that that movie just will forever be good. <laughs> I think it's really funny too, because sometimes when people are like, I was born in the wrong decade or like I was born in the wrong time or whatever. I absolutely was not because <laughs> first of all, it's like you were 13 when 13 going on 30 came out. I was 22 when 22 by Taylor Swift came out. I was in eighth grade when mean girls came out. Things like that where the, timing of it it's like wow you really feel like and granted mean girls is the it's a great representation of the monoculture because literally everyone thinks that mean girls is speaking to them personally even though it is something that the majority of people have seen consumed or have some kind of relationship to but i mean there's just nothing like being in that situation i remember going to see mean girls in theaters with a bunch of mean girls and i was really? like oh man i was like this movie hits a little bit too close to home probably super awkward coming out of the theater you're like looking like side to side you're like oh which one? like you're trying to like size up your friends you're like which one of you were regina which one of you were gretchen like you're probably like looking out like ooh, that would be tough <laughs> it was tough and i think it was i think it's funny too because even just being kind of in the nostalgia niche now, I'm sure you do this too, where you have such opportunities to, or like you're creating a piece of content that reminds you of something. And for me, I think the biggest difference between me, you know, then as a teenager or a preteen versus now is like, I have this self-awareness and this idea of how I'm perceived. And back then it's like, I didn't Almost like it's not that I didn't know that those kind of social hierarchies existed, but I think that I just didn't understand like the Regina at school. I didn't understand why someone would act that way. Mm -hmm. I completely agree too. And I think also too, especially having a lot of friends in dance and if those same friends didn't go to your school per se, it could feel a little isolating too kind of like a Regina George situation because you didn't have like that friends. And, and so like to an outsider's perspective, it would be like, Oh, like, why is this girl like not socializing or anything, you know, with other people. And I feel like that kind of subjects you to a, a, a culture like that too, which that can, I mean, nobody really wants to make high school any harder, but <laughs> it, it does exist. It definitely does. 
Yeah, it's interesting to think about the different perceptions of people and based on, especially with teenagers, with everyone's lack of life experience and everyone's insecurities. And I've really been fascinated by that idea of awareness and perception where here I am thinking I'm the Katie or I'm even the Karen and but other people <laughs> might look at your group from the outside and see Regina yeah. and you don't have control over how other people perceive you or your group and just like how they're going through the cafeteria it's so easy to put labels on people and to put people in boxes and just natively that's not how I think right yeah and I, I'm so with you there. <laughs> yeah and have to kind of reconcile with that and be like wow now I'm I'm in my 30s and I can challenge these perceptions that other people have had of me or that I've held of myself and and what does that say and as all these trends come back as all of these styles as all of the things that remind us of this time that we did have the firsthand experience in how do we look back and see that differently I think it's super interesting oh absolutely too well and I think even I mean I even you know and I talked about this a little bit too publicly on social media but I think a lot of like the 2000s culture it was very size up size up your friends and but it was so frowned upon to be put a label on like for example like I, I do primarily like you know emo scene nostalgia but one of the funny things too is that I, I label it now of that but back then that was considered like a slap in the face to be called emo because you didn't want to be put in that box and it was just it was like an insult if somebody said that to you even though that's what you were or what kind of like the the classification of subculture you fell on like fell into it was still really frowned upon too but you know things change and i'm kind of glad that they've shifted as well too and i feel like nowadays people are a lot more inclusive towards each other and there isn't like those those barriers that existed and i think also i think with the power of social media i think you know kids growing up because i mean they're basically you know growing up with social media from the time they're born and so they, they you know they get you know middle school high school and they they know they're you know running a full-on business basically <laughs> So, and like, you know, we were kind of left to like our own devices to kind of figure out, you know, how it worked and it was just still very new. But I think also, I think it's made kids or I can't speak for everybody, but I think it's kind of made people realize there's a more human side to it now. So I don't think people are necessarily sizing people up as much, if that makes sense. I remember I had a roommate in college who had been in the popular clique in high school and I wasn't. So I was like, oh, well, I wasn't popular. But it's like, but that's not what popularity means. And I think seeing like, no, I'm the girl that knows everybody. Everyone knows me as like the girl who dances, whatever. And seeing it in that way and then seeing what kind of perceptions people have tied up in that, you're like, whoa, I totally missed all of. And I guess when you're a teenager, teenager, it's not really your job to like psychoanalyze everything. Right. But as we like looking at the past through a contemporary lens, it's like, well, what the hell? Like, what have we learned in the last 20 something years? And how can we look back on what happened in order to live the lives that we want to now and make the future better for us and for everybody? Oh, absolutely. And it's, yeah, it's interesting to kind of, you said psychoanalyze, like how you were, because I didn't, I mean, I still like, 
I still have questions too. Like where I'll run into people like I went to school with or I'll see them and they're like, who are you? I'm like, oh, like I didn't talk to the <laughs> people. I just performed and that was kind of like my love language too. But yeah, it's kind of interesting to see like how like your perception of yourself or like kind of understanding how that perception was now, like you said, through like a contemporary lens. I love that analogy. I thought you were really good, really good analogy. <laughs> this podcast's tagline is deep conversations about superficial things. And so that is what we do. We look back on things that happened and now we might be like, excuse me, what? We said that we did that. This movie said that this movie did that. And it's now we only have the context of what's going on currently, whereas then we were a product of whatever that cultural zeitgeist was. So whatever we were doing then, no matter how cringe or whatever we see it now, it was normal and expected back then. Oh, and absolutely. So, yeah, as we get more life experience, as we get more information, our perceptions change and like we grow and we learn and... That's how we move forward as a society. And ultimately, that's we end up seeing pop culture that's made as a result of the now. And no matter what kind of T-shirt was in style, no matter what kind of haircut was in style, we're ultimately able to look back and see how it's a product of that exact time, which is why if I showed you a picture from 2001 versus 2007 you would be like oh yeah distinctly different but to oh, maybe absolutely. someone who wasn't there they'd be like oh the 2000s like i don't know or and it is so obvious i think especially when the trend cycle repeats and things come back um where things get so specific and i think in seeing your videos and even just seeing your hair i'm like it takes me back so specifically is that your real hair that you use so funny story so i actually started with my real hair and i was doing it eh, for about a year and then i recently just had a lot of like health issues and so like my hair can't sustain the amount of teasing that it requires um so i did have to switch to a wig but for the first about for the first year it was my real hair and i will say I was sad to switch to a wig, but I'm also really relieved because I don't have to like strategize my shower days quite so meticulously anymore. <laughs> um, it just makes getting ready a heck of a lot easier. That wig looks amazing. I'm like, I yeah. almost, cause my whole life until I turned 30, my hair was like down to my hips. I had long hair forever. It's actually now weird looking back at pictures of me with long hair because I'm like that's so not me anymore but it was so who I was so even just seeing your wig I'm like oh my god should I get a 2000 scene wig I honestly I love it and I I did have to cut it a little bit because it wasn't quite like how like it wasn't as full as I would have hoped and I'm probably going to be adding some more to it just because the ends are getting a little thin um but yeah, it's kind of fun to just put it on and be like, holy crap, because I wore it out to, um, I've worn it to emo night a couple of times. I've gone and people are like, oh my, like people will get so excited. They're like, your hair looks amazing. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you. Like, it's kind of cool. <laughs> but like, cause I, I didn't get to have like that extreme hair when I was a kid. So I'm like, now I get to like live that. And it's, it's fun to just put on a wig and just, you know, rock it for a little bit and kind of have like a different persona per se. So I, I recommend it. <laughs> 
I really love that. And I wanted to thank you so, so much for being here with me yes, today. Thank you. Of course, I absolutely love all of the different things that we chatted about from dance to theater to emo culture and how those things all tie in and how us not wanting to put ourselves in those boxes, it, you know, it shows that all of those different parts, seemingly unrelated parts can all together, all come together as one. Absolutely. And they can absolutely coexist too. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Thank you again. And thank you everyone for listening. We will see you next time. Bye. Bye. That's a wrap for this week. If you like Nostalgia, please connect with me on social. Subscribe to the Nostalgia newsletter at nostalgia.substack.com and follow, rate, review on your platform of choice. Everything's linked in the show notes, including where to find more about our guest of the week. Thank you so, so much for your support. And that was this week's episode of Nostalgia. Wow. <laughs>